0: alienate and marginalize people welcome to conversations this is your host michael stone and i'm looking forward to an interview today with my friend langston khan he's a queer black shamanic practitioner specializing in radical transformation and freeing up emotions to be the wise teachers that they are he stands firmly at the crossroads of Western tradition and the traditions of the African diaspora, His practice is informed by the Western modality of interrelationship focusing, initiations into the contemporary shamanic tradition of the Last Mask Center, and the guidance of his helping spirits and ancestors, weaving it all together. Langston, welcome to Conversations. Thank you for having me, Michael. So cool to have you. I had you on the summit, and people just loved your presence and, Let's take it a little deeper. I just wanted to ask you a personal question in your bio. You call yourself a black shamanic practitioner. Now, I don't call myself a white colonialist educated <laughs> for obvious reasons, <laughs> but talk a little bit about why that's in your bio what What
1: called you to put that in there? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think first, it's important to me that I make it very clear that I identify as Black because I think, I mean, Blackness is a, is a very complex thing. And in some ways, you know, of course, race is a construct. But in other ways, being a Black man in the U.S. carries with it a history and culture and certain practices and perspectives that deeply inform the work that I do, my approach to my work as a shamanic practitioner and shamanic healer. Um, and so for me, it's important to be very clear that that is part of my identity um, and not necessarily all of my identity, obviously, but, but it's, it's because we're on a sort of you know, moving platform of racism and assimilation and whiteness in much of contemporary culture, I think it's important. Um, you have to sort of, you have there's a pressure to uh, very clearly give voice to aspects of your identity that people otherwise might um, erase if they, if you're not giving voice to them. that's part of my blackness, part of my queerness. People might, in you know, a heteronormative, um, predominantly white culture, just assume um, and erase parts of my identity if I don't give voice to them. That's one of the reasons it's important to me.
0: Yeah, I love that. Sarah King and I were talking about shades of blackness a couple mm. of weeks ago and, and, and the impact of that, what it's like being black in America. So what's it like in your practice? So you are a shamanic practitioner, but you're also a therapist and you also are schooled in the African diaspora. So, and you work for the Last Mask Center and What's it like, what's your work like? Tell us a little bit about that uh, with all those combinations you have.
1: Yeah, thank you. So first I should clarify, I'm not a therapist. I don't wanna get any trouble there. <laughs> but, oh, I'm uh, sorry, I thought uh, you were. Uh, yeah, yeah, so I do, I do do a lot of work that goes deeply into emotions and traumas. I think many healers do, um, but I'm not, I'm not actually a licensed therapist. Um, and I, I have a lot of colleagues that are therapists and I work closely with therapists and referring clients to them. And sometimes they refer their clients to me. So that's really important to me, that intersection between um, contemporary therapeutic practices and perhaps uh, more shamanic or indigenous approaches to healing. Uh, I think they're definitely complementary, not in opposition to each other. Okay. But my, what my personal work looks like is um, there's kind of three primary aspects of my work one is shamanic healing work so that's me going into an altered state, a sort or of trance state and i'm making offerings on the client's behalf and then moving into the spirit world to assess what are the true roots of the challenges they're currently facing in their life beneath the surface of things mm-hmm. so clients come to me with all different types of um, challenges that they're facing in their life. And usually it's after they've done a significant amount of work with other types of practitioners as well, whether it be different healing modalities or um, therapy for many years, but they've reached a point in their process where they're not getting the results that they think they should be for the work that they've been doing. And they're wanting help to go deeper. And that's usually where I come in um, to, to really work with my own spirit help and my own experience following the path of my healing to see is the true root of what they're facing something like soul loss where a part of them has been lost during a moment of trauma is it um something that's related to shadow like marginalized or completely dissociated parts of them that are kind of stuck in what you might call their shadow closet and coming out in patterns of self-sabotage or addiction or intense fear is it something like um an ancestral pattern, like unresolved ancestral issues that are affecting their life um, that I need to go in and find the root of and, and work to address. Or it's something like a curse or an intrusive energy and just really looking at the um, deep, fundamental aspects of their being that are being prevented from manifesting in their true essence. the the sort of natural power and gifts and magic that they came here to be that's kind of tangled up for whatever reason in some kind of deep underlying pattern. And through my work and then helping them to integrate whatever happens during that healing session, allowing them to come into a deeper sense of their purpose and what they're here to do.
0: Yeah, beautiful. Well said. Let's start with talking about trauma and uh, collective trauma. I've been studying with Thomas Hubel for quite some time, who has really brought collective trauma to the forefront, I believe. And uh, mm-hmm. and when we look at trauma, first of all, let's define trauma, individual and collective mm-hmm. trauma. Let's talk about that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The difference between yeah. the two and the in- in independent kind of impact that they each have.
1: Mm-hmm yeah that's a really important topic i think right now that it's becoming more and more common in just everyday conversation right now in our culture because it's so ubiquitous Um, and so for me how one of the ways i would define trauma that i might give different definitions of different days of the week is just a moment where we lost access to a part of ourselves as we made a decision to survive or Or we got sort of a part of ourselves got stuck in sort of a fear based decision we made to survive that was out of alignment with our true nature or natural instincts or authenticity, but that we did need to make in that moment to be able to move forward. But that in that moment, there's a part of ourselves that gets sort of stuck in that traumatic experience and we continue to make similar decisions or maybe even move towards re traumatizing um, situations in an effort to tr- try to, well, in a sense, that part of ourselves that's stuck in a vision we made to survive, it continues to perceive reality through the lens of that traumatic situation. Mm-hmm. So that's one aspect of personal, sort of what you might call biographical trauma. And it's important to realize that it's not, that a, it's not about the event, that two people might experience the same event that we might label as traumatic, you know, the capital T, Um, like an assault of some kind, but one person might develop trauma from that experience, another person might not. And so trauma is a very personal thing, and it's more about our reaction to the experience that we have versus the experience itself.
0: So it's the choice we make or the story we make up when we have to protect ourselves when something is threatening and in order to move forward, as you say, we, we could just let it go or we could create a, a suppressed part of ourselves, which, of course, is what soul loss is, or dissociate, which is soul loss in essence. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Now, what about the relationship of our personal trauma to the collective trauma uh, that we have? For instance, in the United States... I think it's becoming more and more evident that uh, the genocide of the Native people, slavery, and the you know, bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, those are all huge collective trauma events. How do you see them held in the, say, the, as an American, how, how does that affect our psyche and how do you address that?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really important question. I mean, first I want to say that when I say we make a choice with our sort of personal trauma, oftentimes those are unconscious choices yeah. that we're that we're making in those moments. And I also, you know, want to emphasize that sometimes the the just letting it go is not possible in that moment. That's something we have to come back to later in life. And so I feel like with collective trauma, there's this way that it's intimately linked to our personal trauma often, because often, you know, much of trauma often occurs in our family of origin as we grow up, and that the, the ways that children are traumatized by their parents, or that their parents either consciously or unconsciously traumatize their children, often I think has to do a lot with ways that our culture fails to support us, that we're not as culturally supporting um, attending the threshold of birth of initiation into adulthood and of death well and so when that's not happening from generation to generation and when the only cosmology we have is capitalism which in a sense benefits from us being traumatized because we're easier to market to in that state then naturally um, parents and children are going to be traumatized in their relationship with one another because there isn't that larger context of support holding that container. And so then on top of that sort of cultural failure to tend those important thresholds that, you know, all indigenous cultures across the world have known were important to tend, it's like a very recent experiment to stop tending them. um, We also have things like ancestral trauma due to that lack of tending of death, which can be related to things like um slavery or the genocide of the indigenous peoples and first peoples of this land um, that we you know i think that can be there could be ancestral trauma there for those descendants like i am of enslaved peoples but also um, for those who were the ones instituting the slavery those who had slaves that there's a way that um, that kind, those kind of actions and choices arise out of a different sort of trauma that they then sort of place on the bodies of those they have enslaved through their own damage that they have inside themselves. Um, Resma Menicam is a really excellent author who writes a lot about the ways that. European bodies were already so traumatized by the ways they had killed their own indigenous traditions and people before they ever went out to colonize other, you know, nations and lands and and enslave other people.
0: Yeah. Beautifully said. Thomas Hubel calls our um, dissociated parts or our soul parts that are suppressed our childhood friends. And I think that's a really great way to, to look at them because they were, you know always something that protected us in the in the original state and so you have someone come to you that have gone to therapists and they've tried to deal with these issues and you do a soul retrieval so let's let's talk many of the people we've talked about soul retrieval before on my show but let's talk about your particular process of working with a client someone comes to you (laughs) and you discover how well just start the whole process person walks into your office
1: yeah well the first thing we do is have a conversation where we're just talking about what's going on in their life right now and where are the edges they're noticing that are the patterns that are most frustrating them because usually when someone's coming to me they're at the point of frustration where they're ready to let die the current person they are so a new person can be born. They don't quite know how to do that or what needs to die exactly, but they know that something needs to change. And we just have a conversation about what are they seeing right now or those patterns or those events in their life that really need changing right now. And then I'll move into a transit after making some offerings on their behalf, calling in my own spirit help. And I'll be drumming and they'll be lying down next to me. Um, this is when they're in-person clients. I also do distant work. And as I'm drumming, I'll be speaking out loud what's happening as I'm navigating with my helping spirit, their um, sort of interface with the spirit world. Because what people always understand about shamanic healing is a lot of times, sometimes I'm seeing my symbolic language, but a lot of times I'm also seeing the symbolic language of the client. So um, I did one healing session recently where there was a part of a client's um, soul that was in this sort of mad scientist lab and was bent on destroying the world and the, as I started describing that the client was just laughing because they were obsessed with like scientists and they were little and had the, like their like chemistry sets and would sort of think about destroying the world in a sense and we're really shamed for for their creativity and ingenuity and that allowed the energy to get kind of distorted in a way and so there's a sense in which usually as I'm speaking, the clients have a recognition of what I'm describing as I'm describing it. They'll, if I'm describing their mother's kitchen, they're like, yes, that's just what their kitchen was like and they'll be sort of moving back um, as I'm dictating the session into the experience of that landscape and then I'll be tracking what most needs to heal or change for them. And So that might be soul parts, but it might be something different like I described. And so I'm not generally going in saying, I'm going to do a soul retrieval, although I can do that. Usually I'm going in just looking for what is the deepest root of this pattern that would create the most effective change for this person at this time. And then going wherever my helping spirits take me in. So one session might involve multiple modalities like ancestral healing, soul retrieval, depossession, removing of energetic intrusion. And so for a soul part specifically, what's interesting about contemporary people is that whereas in an indigenous culture where the soul is much better tended uh, generally, when people incur soul loss, they like go into a coma or they're like visibly like, very ill and struggling with functioning. Um, And then, you know, the the shaman or whoever, healer or medicine person is called to help bring that full part back and the person gets better pretty rapidly. But in our culture, because our soul isn't tended as we grow, um, it's like a death by a thousand cuts. There's like parts of us that are lost along the way that we adapt to, to avoid touching into that place because it's really painful to feel the whole of that soul loss. So we develop survival mechanisms that allow us to um, continue to move forward in our life without touching into that part place where that disassociated piece is missing from. Mm. And so as I'm tracking the energies, whereas often in an indigenous context, the parts are where they were lost sometimes they're where they were lost, but more often than not, in my experience, the parts are actually in these sort of mythopoetic landscapes that the soul parts have either found or constructed that kind of mirror the traumatic experience they had. So like, for example, they're not, I'm not finding it at like the site of a car accident or in a surgery place, so that could happen for some people, but usually more often it's like, I'm finding this little girl in this fantasy kingdom where she's a princess and everyone has to serve her exactly as she needs. And my helping spirits have to kind of reveal to this little girl, you know, I'm sorry, but you know, this castle is made of cardboard. If you really look at it and help her to actually move into the reality of what she experienced that made her decide she needed to leave and go to this fantasy kingdom in the first place. So then I can help her restore whatever she's missing or needs and she can feel safe to come back to the adult version of the woman she grew up to be. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: that woman can then gain access to her gifts and her medicine. Yeah. Brilliant.
0: And one of the things about now, we're just talking about the soul retrieval. There's so many other areas that you're adding in there, but I think because we live in a quick fix, give me a pill society that people will say, Oh, I need to get a soul retrieval and then I'll get fixed. And there's a lot of work that goes into after you actually recognize and identify those parts, those suppressed or uh, dissociated parts. Talk about, you know, that part of the process.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, So that's definitely true. There is, there is work. There's lots of homework. I usually tell people, there's usually about like, you know, a good two months of homework after a somatic (laughs) healing session. Usually it's not something where you're like, coming every week to get your next shamanic healing session Um, and so right after the soul retrieval usually a person's experience is that there's there's emotions that arise there's often an influx of new energy and there's a feeling of a shift maybe there's access to emotions that felt shut down for a long time or maybe there's a like lessening of like patterns that felt really rocky and, and hard to deal with but then after that first two weeks, your system normalizes. So sometimes people think, oh, wow, nothing happened. Like I, like I was, I was um, you know, feeling great and there's all this good stuff that happened, but then nothing happened. Something must have went wrong. I need another healing, you know, another soul retrieval. But usually that's because, again, it's normalized. Their new experience has been freed up, the energy that they've retrieved. And to access the full transformation that can come out of a soul retrieval they need to start engaging with the soul part itself. So in my experience, a skilled practitioner should be sharing with a person, like around the age, probably the soul part was when it left, um, what gifts, some of the gifts that it brings back, some of the situation the soul part was in perhaps, and then enough information the person can start on their own to begin connecting with that soul part and asking it what they need to start doing or stop doing to fully integrate it. And before that happens, they really need to take time to um, gain the trust of the soul part also. That could be a process of in itself of like a week of just tuning in every day for a few minutes. just really casually. And for some people that's like a scary hard thing. Like I don't trust myself. I think I'm going to be making it up because our culture polices and limits our sense of what's possible with our imagination. And so there's a little bit of um, untraining or new training that needs to happen for people, for some people when they're very new on this journey, where I just share with them, like, you know, just tie this to a habit you already have that you already do every day and just give yourself permission to use your imagination to engage with this part of you at this age. Maybe get a picture of yourself at that age, maybe get an object that you knew was important to you or just draw an image. Um, But just start tuning in and don't make it a big deal. Don't try to make a big ritual around it, like lighting candles and like having to have your sacred like two hours to yourself because then you never do it. You know, just let it be your morning routine of like taking five minutes in silence to tune in or not in silence to start like animatedly talking with this part of you and acting out the child's voice and your voice and really just doing whatever it takes to activate that imagination that sort of like. Right use of the imagination of the inner child that lets you make it real for you, your engagement with this part of you. And over time, as you do that and you explain your adult life to this part of you and hear what their perspectives are on your adult life, um, you begin to gain their trust, and that allows you to begin to show up for this soul part, this this younger version of yourself, in a way that the adults in their life couldn't show up for them at that time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. One of the things that comes up is the need for coherence, or when you're talking about tuning in, I was just thinking, yeah, tuning in, what does that actually mean? Because, uh, you know, my first shamanic teacher was Gabrielle Roth, and I've been teaching five rhythms for many years. And she used to talk about trisophrenia, not schizophrenia, but trisophrenia, where our mind is saying one thing, our body another, and our emotions another, and they're not in alignment. And I, I know that in your work, you add the soul, so it's a uh, quattrofrenia, I guess you'd call it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but that's, I think, a really important part when you're talking about integration and tuning in, is this complete misalignment that so many people have with their mind, body, Feelings, emotional part, and their soul essence.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Um. Well, I think I love that you bring up dance because that's one of my favorite tools for moving out of that kind of um, misalignment, where or at least dropping out of the mind. And into the body and the heart, where there's more of a chance of finding that alignment again, or finding that attunement of that part of you that can never be distorted or broken, that just is who you've always been and who you always will be. That essence at the center of your being. And so, so I think dance can be a really good tool that I work with with my clients to help them when they're struggling in the mind to move into their body. Mm-hmm. Um, but in addition to dance, uh, I think that that's why it's so important that we engage um shamanic tools as well like not you know i work with clients who don't have any shamanic background and so they we might work more in a sort of psychological context in the sense of you know um really just guiding them into the felt sense in their body and helping them to allow that felt sense to align them with a sense of truth. So like is the sensations in their body as they're connecting with this child part opening to them or is it sort of shutting down and darting away and helping them to learn to tune into that sense of truth that's held in the felt sense of our body to, to give them a kind of compass in their work of integration. So that can be really helpful. Um the body's a little less slippery than the mind or the the emotions or the spirit. Um, so I think the more that we can Have tools to help people feel safe in embodiment, uh, the easier it is to do these kind of integration processes, which is a tall order for a lot of us as contemporary people who are so used to spending most of our time outside of our body and in our heads. Yeah, we're a disembodied culture. Well, talk about the,
0: the relationship of soul retrieval. You do power retrieval. I always see those as kind of the same and shadow retrieval. Can you distinguish those three and how, how you work differently if you do with those?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So when I talk about power retrieval, usually I'm referencing um, a helping spirit that is sort of a spirit that's meant to be working with a person that's, that's like one of their core spiritual core, so to speak, that is, that is reflecting back to them essential parts of their own soul and their own power that they came here to embody. And so, for example, um, there might be, uh, I was just working with a, with a client recently who had a snake spirit that was extremely related to their passion and their sensuality and also their anger, in a sense, and their, their healthy relationship with those energies. And so um, when I'm doing a power retrieval, it's bringing back this animal helping spirit or plant helping spirit or other type of guide that can reflect back to them that power that's innate to them that, for whatever reason, has gone offline in their life and can help guide them in the process of that integration as well. And so um, with shadow retrieval, that's a little different. And I should say that that term and that technique was coined by Christina Pratt. who her way of working with shadow is some of the, the most effective that I've ever experienced. And I've experienced a fair amount of different modalities. But um, what I do in that case is I'm using my own experience with my own shadow work I've done and connections to certain helping spirits that are kind of specialists in the shadow realm to move into this archetypal space where um, the parts of us that... Have become disassociated but have not left our body go This is a little different than a soul loss where the part is completely like gone in space and time somewhere and we have to go get him back with a shadow they're actually still in our body and they're growing alongside of us but they've been banished to our unconscious in this sort of archetypal shadow realm so the only way they can express their power and communicate with us is through Self-sabotage through intense fear, through intense attraction to people they know will like force us to look at this part of ourselves, um, or through uh, just anything that moves through our unconscious state, through our dreams, because and so they can actually move faster than we can because our unconscious part of us is faster than our conscious part of us. It takes a little more deliberation and you know struggle between the ego and stuff to actually move consciously. So. With a shadow retrieval, while it's, it's almost impossible for us to go into our own shadow, it's very difficult because the whole design of it is that our mind has put these perfectly authentic parts of ourself in this shadow realm so that we can't access them because our mind has decided, if I embody this part of me, I will die. And so another practitioner, however, can go into your shadow realm and find the shadow part one of your shadow parts that's been sort of relegated to this place and bring it back for you and then give you the tools often through mask work through dance work um, and other types of modalities to transform that shadow part from an enemy form to an ally form and then integrate that ally the same way you would with the soul part into your life Mm -hmm. but the difference is first when they come out of the shadow they're going to be in their enemy form so it's probably a form that's scary to you, that's monstrous to you, that's disgusting to you maybe, or that you judge in some way because your mind thinks this part will kill you if you embody it. So through dropping into the body and and using your creativity through mask work, you can learn to transform that shadow into its true ally form it was always meant to be and then integrate it into your life over time. Yeah, I love that.
0: And it's and it really is about finding it and loving it. But for our listeners, let's be specific about the kinds of shadows. So give us some examples of the kinds of shadows you retrieve and then the way that you uh, um, make friends with it, integrate it, uh, get people to embrace that that child part of them. It's a lot like, for me, my experience, it's a lot like uh, inner child work in a way.
1: hmm hmm Absolutely. Yeah. It's, yeah, in some ways, I mean, I guess the difference between shadow work and inner child work, though it, it can have inner child components, is that shadows aren't necessarily children. Because like a soul part gets stuck at the age it left at. But a shadow part has been right there with you all along, growing alongside of you. So it has access, just as smart as you are, you know, it has access to your same age and your same intelligence. Mm-hmm. So it's a little different in that way of working with shadow parts. Um, but really at its essence, so just to give a very concrete example, I had one client I was working with who had sort of an interesting situation where they had a shadow within a shadow. There was this, um, there was this sort of serpent woman figure inside of them, and it's and the male client, and she had this wound in her heart that was constantly just bleeding and kind of rotten, like gangrenous looking. And then, but she was actually in the mouth of this other shadow who was called the uh, architect. It was like this, it almost looks like Darth Vader, but made out of twigs and like wood and stuff. And it was, what it was was that the, the second pattern that had the other shadow in its mouth was this shadow that had to do with all the ways the client used their spirituality and their religion as ways to distance themselves from other people and almost like a protective force versus a way to get deeper into intimacy with humanity and with life and you know connected. It was like all the ways they used their spirituality as a force of separation in their life. And then the other so that was kind of how the energy become distorted in shadow. And then the other shadow that it had within its mouth, the serpent lady, was connected to all of these ways that they had this deep love and deep desire, and this is a queer client, but it had gotten shut down again and again and again, you know, partly because being in a, you know, situation where there weren't a lot of other queer people in their life, they kept up have been on straight people. And so her sort of shadowy ways of getting her needs met, Eventually proved so painful to the client in his life as this other shadow came and kind of swallowed that shadow, so it became a shadow within a shadow. So even the like shadowy coping mechanisms were no longer allowed um, in in their life because they become destructive, like certain sexual patterns, stuff like that. And so, as I worked with the client, eventually they were able to transform these two parts into. Um, one of them I think was called something like the like diva goddess, the one who knows what she wants and knows how to get it. Like the serpent lady became that eventually. And then the, uh, so it had all this um, power contained within it of, of how to access intimacy and how to actually feel your desires and allow them to move you out into the world. Then the second pattern, the part that used uh, spirituality as a force of separation um, which is actually the straw man was its enemy name eventually became the architect which was this energy that was created Containers for connection in the person's life and actually also was like instrumental in them being able to do new things in their business in their life That they never really created a container for their business that matched that that allowed them to move their work out into the world around spirituality that felt connective and good to them so You can see how these like perfectly beautiful essential energies get shamed for various reasons in our life or made to feel unacceptable and they become distorted and forces of turmoil in our life and then kind of monstrous looking when we first encounter them.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: brilliant. Let's talk about a
0: little more about integration. I think you use plant spirit medicines sometimes. People are really fascinated by that. How does the plant medicine help to integrate? these different parts that we've been talking about?
1: Mm -hmm. That's a great question. So I I have used plant medicines in my own life, but I actually don't use plant medicines as clients. I, what I do do though, is, um, is, is do a lot of integration with work with people who have like, you know, gone and done ayahuasca in the Amazon for like months and then come back. And they don't know how to, bring all of the wisdom and truth and beauty they've experienced in themselves and the world to their everyday life in this contemporary culture. And so a lot of the work I do with those clients is helping them gain the tools to access that depth of intimacy with spirit without relying on plant medicine to have that intimacy.
0: And then one of the things you have, I love the name, the deep liberation process. Talk about that kind of emotional work and and how you do
1: that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that process is really about engaging with life deeply as a teacher to allow it to guide us in bringing all of us um, into play, you know, to, to sort of engaging with our hearts in a way that rather, when we move towards heartbreak, rather than simply shrinking and scarring over, our hearts have the potential to grow bigger and have a greater capacity to really um, move us out into the world and be a container for all of the gifts that we came here to bring. And so that that specific process has multiple components. One component is um, something called energy body mastery, which is really focused on just the basics of how to have a healthy energy body in the world. So this could include, this includes like grounding deeply um, beyond just like visualizing a tree. Like how do we really forge an unshakable connection to the earth that we carry with us throughout our day and gives us a sense of belonging and home and stability and helps alleviate the anxiety that a lot of us feel from walking around ungrounded all the time. The sense of not being safe that arises from that. And then also um, cultivating a healthy central channel and that connection to the divine, energies of above, of protection and purification, um, and unpackaging a lot of the stories that we have about the divine that get in the way of that. And then moving also into cultivating healthy boundaries is one of my favorite topics to talk about because I think most of our boundaries are so messed up as contemporary people because we live in such a codependent culture. So it's a lot about how energetically, how do we form healthy boundaries through different sort of Qigong practices and also um, essentially visualizing healthy boundaries. And then how do we begin to work with those boundaries with new choices that we make in our everyday life? And how do we engage with sort of what our imagination and intuitive senses tell us about our boundaries to understand which choices need to be changed to, to heal and repair those boundaries. I was just going to say, it's such a big issue right now. You know, I do
0: some corporate work and so many, particularly men right now are scared to what to say or how to be, uh-huh. or, you know, do I shake hands? Do I give someone this close a hug? Do this is a big area right now, particularly in the workplace. There's a cost of relational intimacy, not, I mean, relational intimacy, like connecting at the heart level, which in an organization, you know, it's kind of incongruent, say an organization is trying to do good things in the world, and yet they're afraid to uh, communicate or say the wrong thing or actually be authentic. So there's such a disconnect there, particularly Mm -hmm. in the world
1: of work. Have you done any work in that area? Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's, it's really sad that we are at a place where basic relationality feels so fraught. But I think it's wonderful that people, especially women, um, especially Black women, giving voice to ways that their boundaries and consent were violated has led to us as a culture, I think, looking at these deeper issues around touch that I think were there before, uh, you know, Me Too and other movements happened. But that now we're being forced to really look at and think about and, ta- and discuss as a culture how do we relate to each other in a way that feels good to each other, understanding the collective trauma we're all you know, affected by in certain ways, while not allowing that collective trauma to define our relationality or limit our relationality to each other.
0: In many ways revealing things that needed to be brought up and healed uh, in, in a wonderful way. So it's, I see it as a positive thing, but people are very awkward around that issue.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I guess what I appreciate about the awkwardness is the honesty of it. That mm-hmm. I think that awkwardness was there before all these issues came up. People just sort of steamrolled over and I'm just going to do what, I'm, you know, what feels right to me in any given moment. And, and now I think we're all forced to reckon with the awkwardness a bit that maybe perhaps those with us with a bit more privilege didn't have to navigate as much. Other people would feel that awkwardness around us, but we ourselves wouldn't necessarily notice it yeah. because of our privilege.
0: Let's talk about ancestral liberation and the work process work that you do with clients to help them to repair their lineage through themselves.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I started really working with people more in ancestral healing work in terms of like a package, like like doing at least five sessions with people, because what I found was that as I work with one-on-one people, most people, you know, wanted to do multiple sessions anyway, but um, also I thought there was a need that as we Feel the unresolved energies of the dead, of those who have gone before us that maybe didn't move on quite well, or held burdens or patterns that got passed down the lines and became bigger with each generation. We also need to attend to the ways that those patterns shaped our perception of reality and caused us to make choices that weren't alignment with our authenticity, like we talked about trauma before. And so, there's this way that how I most enjoy working people in relationship to ancestors is supporting them both in doing the work to move on the unresolved dead and help untangle unresolved ancestral patterns and, and free up the blessings of their ancestral lines, but then also to track within themselves the ways those patterns distorted their own authenticity and true nature and untangle that energy. So I think that, that sort of dual work of the inner personal work and the work with the ancestors allowed the person to much more fully open to the blessings of their line moving out into their life and into the world.
0: Yeah. And that inner work is a healing for the ancestral lineage
1: too. It's- mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, sometimes I, 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 um, I think about that a lot that, that I think that's true that. When we do healing work, we also, you know, it echoes back beyond us. Um, And also, I think sometimes in our inner work, we can get to a place where we hit a wall. Or like, I've done all the personal work in the world. I've, you know, I've done this and that and this workshop and that workshop. And yet I still can't shift this pattern. And more often than not, what I find on the other side of that wall is a whole bunch of unresolved ancestral issues. Mm-hmm. And we can't address them, be trying to address them through us versus actually moving to the root, the true root of that pattern in the ancestral line, and then clearing it there. So otherwise, it's like this wave that continually overtakes us. We'll like move out a little bit from under it with our personal work, and then it'll just come back down on us again. And so I think there is that helpful distinction. I think so much of shamanism is learning what consciousness is most useful for the task I'm trying to accomplish in this moment and how to navigate between those different states. So I think sometimes that consciousness of deep inner work is important. that can reverberate out to heal our ancestors, but sometimes we need to directly go to the root of the problem, the ancestral realms as well, to be able to gain more traction in our personal work.
0: Now in your work, Langston Khan, do you focus on, uh, like the matrilineal and patrilineal lineage, or do you take a broader scope in that? I know some people do it in different ways like that. What what's your way of working?
1: Yeah, I it depends on, on how I'm working and on the client as well. Sometimes I'll be working with a client more and guiding them deep into their own process um, with their ancestors, which will be more looking at like assessing, you know, the main for lineages and then doing that type of work, but other times I am tracking a pattern specifically. Like if I'm in a shamanic healing session and I'm looking for the root of a pattern, I'm not necessarily worrying about is it the mother's line or the father's line, I'm just going to find who is the ancestor who originated this pattern in your line. And then I might gain information about which side of the family it's on or or, or not. Um, But I'm really focused on working with that ancestor to resolve their unreconciled life, pull the patterns out of the ancestral lines, moving on all those other ancestors who are trapped in those patterns, and then um, fully dismantling that pattern and and describing it to the client so that they can use their understanding of those patterns to clear them how they're showing up in their own life now that they've been cleared from the ancestral realm. So it could actually be
0: a cultural pattern as opposed to a blood pattern then.
1: Yes, it could be. And, and often the cultural patterns come through some bloodline, but, um, but yeah, absolutely. It can be, it could be anything, really. I mean, I, like, for example, one common one is there's never enough money. You know, just this feeling of scarcity around money or resources that just feels like reality, even once someone actually is really stable and, and well financially, but they have this underlying feeling there's never enough you know resources because there were ancestors who experienced that pattern so then going to find where did that originate in the line and clearing that pattern and and then helping the person to begin to transform how that's still showing up in their life Mm, that's great
0: we're running a little short on time. I want to make sure we talk about spiritual communities and some of the mm-hmm. advantages and disadvantages and ways that they implode and practices that actually build community and dissolve our othering that we tend to do that is so prevalent in so many societies today.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I love talking about community just because um, I really couldn't do the work that I do in the world without my community and so so my community my main primary community is the last mass communities i'm part of some other communities as well and that's the community i've served for five years on the leadership council of um, and also just really my heart center in a sense and where, where i resource a lot from and so i mean for me i guess what makes community essential is that as humans, we all have blind spots. And it's really hard if you don't have people who know you intimately and also have similar shared skills and beliefs and principles and, and a shared vision with you to actually be able to see into those blind spots. You know, occasionally we'll get reflections from like a close partner or from friends, and that's beautiful and helpful and important too. But I think there's a certain container that community can hold that is just irreplaceable. And it's, that's really hard as a contemporary person to not have that, or to, as any human being to not have that. But especially for contemporary people, most of us aren't born into true community. We're not born into a community with a cosmology, with shared skills and practices, with a shared vision. And so there's a real um, lack of a sense of meaning of our actions, like we're like, okay, I wanna share my gifts in the world, but who am I sharing them with? And you know, who cares about what I'm doing as a small human being in this vast world? And I think community provides this sort of, I don't wanna say bubble, cause it doesn't separate us from the world, but it can provide this sort of alternate reality, alternate cosmology that we can step into with other people who are supporting us in our goal of stepping more and more into our authenticity. And as we work to serve the vision of that community that's larger than our own personal small vision, it helps us to navigate towards places within us that are wounded or stuck or you know, in trauma in certain ways that are required to bring that bigger vision into manifestation. So instead of just becoming human beings who are like you know, healed and well enough to be okay in the world, You become human beings who can actually create new worlds and and really create change, um, which I think we all know right now is really needed in our culture at this time. I just don't think any one human being can do that alone, that we need a larger container to provide the space and a larger vision than just our personal vision that pushes us to become the people who can truly create that change that's needed.
0: Yeah, really well said. You know, it's such an important thing. We we are moving out of the mechanistic Newtonian-Cartesian paradigm of being objects in a world of objects into, you know, if we're going to survive, into a more quantum kind of relationship where everything is inseparable. And yet we, our language and our institutions, that separation is embedded in our sciences everywhere. And so that's such an important issue. And I know that's a big issue for you is, is uh, building that. And I'm so grateful for the work you're doing and helping people to dissolve those uh, myths of separation, which they really are. There is no separation. You couldn't do shamanic work if you really thought you were separate. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's like, yeah. It's just so good to be with you, Langston. And I'm looking forward to your book. What's the name of your new book?
1: deep liberation deep liberation and it comes out yeah. when uh it will come out in uh summer of 2020 okay
0: awesome for next year yeah well for all of our listeners thank you so much langston
1: for being on. thank you so much michael it's so wonderful talking with you always
0: Conversations is an independently produced program supported by KVMR 89.5 Nevada City and listener contributions. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinking in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or order any of our past shows, go to our website at arewelistening.net.